Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. What do you call a man with no body and just a nose? I don't know. Nobody knows. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. One hour of culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Tatiana Maslany. This week she earned an Emmy nomination for playing nine characters in the TV show Orphan Black. Coming up, we'll speak with folks behind a couple of other hit shows, Unreal star Sheree Appleby and Inside Amy Schumer producer Jesse Klein, who talks about her feminine ideals versus the feminine ideal. And the store anthropology figures in there somewhere. It does. Plus, comedian Wyatt Cenac tells us what not to say to a mall cop. The man behind the Dan Band tells you what not to play at your wedding. And Rico learns what not to drink in Chicago. And I drink it anyway. But first, as at any party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Theresa May, the United Kingdom's new prime minister, took office yesterday. Venezuela is unraveling with shortages of food and medicine and runaway inflation. Bernie Sanders endorsed Hillary Clinton for president. And now for a story you might not have heard, we are speaking with Rebecca Lehrer. She is co-host of The Mashup Americans, a podcast about identity and culture. And Rebecca, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? I'm going to talk about how city birds are meaner and louder and more stressed than their country cousins. They're angry birds. Oh, exactly. Good one. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it was a recent study in Bogota, Colombia, about birds and how their voices and communication patterns change depending on traffic patterns. Meaning what? Meaning it's sort of like getting a new accent, right? So they're in New York and they're like, ah, there's all these different traffic patterns and at this time of day this is happening, so I got to make sure to... Tweet, 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 tweet really fast at this point of the day in order for my friends oh. to hear me or my girlfriend or my potential girlfriend. It's fascinating, but it actually is not that surprising, right? Because the cityscape is completely obnoxious. Of course, it would change a little bit. <laughs> right, right? And, exactly. And it's actually that they're a lot smarter than the non-city birds. So they'll have. Mm. So, so there's a study last year that actually showed that they're more competitive. And they could, city birds? Out, yeah, and they could outsmart the country birds. Oh no! Yes, they could get more food. They were acting more creative. They were more bold in terms of taking action. This sounds like a hoity-toity <laughs> city birds conducted this study. Yeah, but then they also die faster. Oh, I know. A catch. <laughs> That's the catch. They live right. so hard, but they're adapting really fast to cities. This would explain the sparrow I saw with the latte vaping the other day. <laughs> the vaping apartment. sparrow. Yeah, got their own bars now. There is a vape bar. It is changing into city birds. Yeah, it's called Sparrow Vape Bar. It's on 16th and 2nd. <laughs> Rebecca Lair, thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history and give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a northwestern pine forest shrouded in a fog of booze. Mm. Majestic. First, the history part. (laughs) Back in the summer of 65, the FBI wrapped up one of its strangest investigations. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. In the mid-60s, American taxpayers funded a two-year investigation of a frat party song. More precisely, the frat party song. A.K.A. Louie Louie by the Kingsmen. Now, the tune was originally performed in the 50s by doo-wop band The Pharaohs. In their version, you can hear the lyrics nice and clear. 
It's the lament of a Jamaican telling a bartender, Louie, about the girlfriend he left across the sea. We catch the ship across the sea. But the Kingsman's cover in 1963 was anything but clear. Recorded in one take for a grand total of 36 bucks, the vocals were garbled beyond recognition, which made it a great song to drink tons of beer to. And that's probably how the rumors began. Drunken frat kids swore they heard something dirty in the mumbled lyrics. Yeah, something about <gasps> sex or something. Parents caught wind of the rumor and were certain they could hear filthy obscenities too. Soon the song was banned in Indiana and the FBI was on the case. Agents spent months interrogating the Kingsmen and listening to Louie Louie over and over again. They tried to decipher the lyrics. Was the line, me gotta go? Or grab her way down low? FBI lab technicians analyzed the tune at every possible speed. Their final conclusion? Uh, not sure. The Bureau's final report declared the song, quote, unintelligible at any speed, and therefore pretty hard to label obscene or otherwise. Louie Louie went on to become one of the most covered pop tunes ever, even though most people still have no idea what the song's about. So that was the history lesson. Now for the drink to go along with it, we are joined by Jordan Magnuson. She is the bar manager at Angel Face in Portland, Oregon, where the Kingsmen are from. And I, I think you're actually outside Angel Face. Is that right, Jordan? Yes, I am. I <laughs> lent a key to an employee. Well, hopefully they will remain an employee after uh, after this. So, Jordan, what, so you heard the history, and you've already created a drink for us. What, what's the drink you made up? So the drink I made up, uh, I wanted to uphold the roots of what I felt the song's integrity was, and it's in the style of a Jamaican ballad. Yeah. Richard Berry wrote it in that style. And so I chose Smith & Cross rum, a really funky Jamaican rum, two ounces cool. of that, an ounce of coconut puree, um, mm. three dashes of chocolate bitters, which was the finishing touch I found at the very end that it needed, and a quarter Laird's apple brandy and a quarter maple syrup, all shaken together topped with a float of Fernet Valet. And what what the what does the Fernet do? Definitely makes it more complex, but the Fernet adds a really, really stunning color on top of the creamy white tropical looking cocktail. It adds yeah. like a sexy darkness on the top of it, which reminded me of the FBI investigation actually. <laughs> the sexy darkness of the FBI? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kind of right. kinda clouds up the, the pure white cocktail with Interesting. Yeah. So what what's the name of your cocktail? You know what? I'm realizing I didn't even name it. <laughs> okay. Well we can name it together then. How about you give yeah. it a, we'll get we'll give it an indiscernible name. <laughs> so maybe we can call it the uh, yeah, that sounds perfect. Okay, so there you go. If you find yourself an angel face in Portland, just go to the bar and ask for a... <laughs> yep, I'll know exactly what you're talking about. Jordan Magnuson, she's with Angel Face Bar in Portland, Oregon. And Brendan, the only problem with the name of that drink is that after a night of drinking, most people's orders are indecipherable. <laughs> All of them are named that. Well, Jordan can't get inside her bar at this point, so... <laughs> 
kind of a non-issue. That's true. Good luck, Jordan. Good luck to you. Getting your career back. And folks, you can find the recipe for the Utrgebrsch along with all our cocktails at dinnerpartydownload.org. Time to eavesdrop. For four years, comedian Wyatt Cenac served up timely satire as a Daily Show correspondent. He's now hatched his own show, Night Train, a surreal showcase for stand-up comedians and artists. Earlier this year, Wyatt put out an album of his own stand-up material. It's called Furry Dumb Fighter and touches on difficult topics that feel especially relevant right now. Today we overhear an excerpt. And by the way, for you podcasters, we've left in the cuss words in this segment, since a cuss word is at the center of the story. If you're listening with kids, you might want to fast forward the next five minutes. When I was 19, I got arrested because somebody broke into my car. Let me repeat that. (laughs) Somebody broke into my car and I got arrested, which I will say, to be fair, I do fit the description of somebody. Also, at the time, I was working at a Foot Locker, so I had on one of those striped uniforms. So maybe they thought I'd escape from Alcatraz in the 20s. <laughs> this is what happened. I was 19 years old. I was living in Greensboro, North Carolina. And while I was at work, somebody broke into my car. And so I called the cops to file a report. And the cops then referred it to the mall police. Because I don't know if you know how the chain of command works. But it goes local police, state police, FBI, mall police, CIA. So it gets referred to the mall police. Mall police officer shows up to my job and he says, yeah, we heard about your car getting broken into. We're not gonna file a report because it's your fault your car got broken into. You were in mall parking too long. I was like, but I work at the mall. He was like, I don't know what to tell you. I was like, I don't really know what to say, except fuck you. And then he took me down to the ground, handcuffed me, and he dragged me off to jail. Yeah, but he took me to mall jail. The mall had a jail. It used to be the place where you could drop your kids off when you wanted to go shopping. So my cell had a mural of a lion and his jungle friends. I did time in Zubilee Zoo, and I walked away. I have one of those spiderweb tattoos on my elbow, but mine's from Charlotte's Web. Says some pig. I really got arrested, though. I really got arrested, and I got charged. I got two charges. These were the charges. The first charge he charged me with, he said it was illegal to say the word fuck in North Carolina. Which sounded like bullshit, but I didn't want to say that because I didn't know if it was legal. (laughs) Second charge, the more serious charge, he charged me with inciting a riot. (laughs) Yeah, because he said I undermined his authority, which I feel like got undermined the day he became a mall cop. (laughs) But he said I undermined his authority and other people could have heard it and chaos could have ensued like some Minority Report precog bullshit, which I don't know why a mall in Greensboro, North Carolina has a preemptive crime squad. There's a bunch of psychics sitting in an icing bath under a Cinnabon. 
They're like, a 14-year-old girl is gonna steal earrings from Forever 21. Go! But I got charged with inciting a riot, and I was 19 years old, and I'm just thinking my life is over. I'm handcuffed to a piano, and... I'm just saying, because you have to, like, that's serious. I actually had to pay a lawyer to get it expunged from my record. Because inciting a riot, that, that gets you on no-fly lists. Like, that's what freedom fighters get charged with. Like, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm 19, I'm like, I bet this is what, like, Martin Luther King got charged with. And, like, H. Rap Brown, Angela Davis. Oh, shit, am I a civil rights hero? <laughs> I still am nervous around cops. I still get scared around cops. 20 years later, still get scared around cops. I had this happen. I was walking home a few, a few years ago. I was walking home. Uh, I live in Brooklyn. And I was walking home, and this police car started driving next to me. It was nighttime, just following me. I'd walk a little faster. He'd drive a little faster. I'd go a little slower. He'd drive a little slower. And finally, I get to a corner, and he rolls down his window. And he just he yells out. He's just, hey! And I immediately tense up. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> And he pulls out a light, and he's just shining this light on me for a really long time, just staring at me. I'm just petrified. He's just staring at me, and finally he's like, Daily Show, right? Keep up the good work. And I was like, I don't have to, I know my rights. And that's why I left the Daily Show. That's why I left. Wyatt Cenac, with an excerpt from his recent album, Furry Dumb Fighter. Wyatt also hosts the new stand-up and variety show, Night Train. Catch it on the online comedy channel, CISO. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up, Shiri Appleby talks about acting in a fictional show about a nonfiction show, which sometimes borders on fiction, Mm. and comedian Jesse Klein wrestles with her least-slash-most-favorite store. Every anthropology looks like the manger where Zoe Deschanel was born. That and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, Shiri Appleby, star of the acclaimed TV show Unreal, tests me in 90s trivia and I fail. And you'll also hear me drink Chicago's signature terrible beverage. It's a banner show for Rico this week. It's a, it's a living. But first, let's learn some etiquette. All right. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time around is comedy writer Jesse Klein. Yes. She's the Emmy and Peabody award-winning head writer and executive producer of Inside Amy Schumer. She's also written for Saturday Night Live and Transparent. In her new memoir, You'll Grow Out of It, she details the absurdities of being a modern woman. From the judgment that accompanies opting out of natural childbirth to her own obsession with Gwyneth Paltrow. And Jesse, it's great to have you on our show. It's so nice to be here. I love listening to a list of my accomplishments. So we thought a good way maybe to give people insight to your point of view would be to have you describe your relationship to two stores, Mm -hmm. which feature prominently in your book, Victoria's Secret and Anthropology. Well, Victoria's Secret, I have always described going into that store as like walking into someone else's vagina. Oh my God. It's just trying so hard to let you know that this is lady stuff. It's very pink. Anthropology is also pretty feminine though. There's still frills. It's still, there are some frills. There aren't thong baskets. No, No, there's not a thong basket. Sounds like a terrible insult. Shut up, you thong basket. (laughs) Anthropology to me feels like a very warm, safe 
space. And as I describe in the book, every anthropology looks like the manger where Zoe Deschanel was born. <laughs> Just a very adorable and adorkable, twee, precious space. And yeah. I say that with lots of love for Zoe Deschanel, who's acting I enjoy and mm. whose music I like. Yes. But in that essay, you kind of don't like how much you like anthropology. Oh, I hate how much I love anthropology. And <laughs> this book, there's this fraught relationship with femininity. Yeah, well, I think that's a lot of women's relationship to femininity. I think there is this sense of, oh, God, I'm supposed to do that? That seems unpleasant and uncomfortable mm. um, or painful if we're talking about waxing your body. <laughs> mm. There's a lot of processes. And so part of you is like, oh, that sucks. I don't want to do that. And I'm a feminist, but I would be lying if I said there wasn't a part of me that also is as susceptible to the illusion of it and the yeah. potential glamour and reward of it as anybody. We wanted to ask you about that. So Inside Amy Schumer, hugely popular show. It's become almost more than a sketch show. Some of the bits become these viral social media phenomena that people use to bolster a certain brand of feminism. But your job is firstly to make funny things and give a chuckle. So to what extent is the political and the social message on your mind when you're writing? Well, I think in a way what's leading is honesty. That leads good comedy and leads good art, honesty and vulnerability, and kind of trying to share some specific shade or angle to a truth that feels underrepresented on television. But are you like walking down the street and you're like, there's a truth or an injustice? How do I represent yeah, that? Yeah, very, <laughs> very much so. Um, you know, like the sketch last humble thing. Mm -hmm. You'll bleep it. Um, <laughs> we will. You know, but we, we should tell people about this sketch. There, It's a, a bunch of very famous comedic actresses, Tina Fey, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and they're kind of helping Amy Schumer celebrate the day that the media mm -hmm. is no longer regarding her as young and sexy. And, you know, that came out of um, flipping, like, the pages of an Us Weekly and talking about, like, images of women in that magazine and trying to figure out if there was this sort of Malcolm Gladwellish tipping point, yes. an exact moment that that happens. <laughs> and yeah, I have to give a lot of credit to the women who were in that sketch because they all improvised such funny yeah. lines. And Tina was the one who improvised the line as she's kind of describing this phenomenon. She's saying, you know how Sally Field was... Tom Hanks's girlfriend in one movie and then like four seconds later she played his mom in Forrest yeah. Gump. <laughs> so I think, you know, little tiny personal moments are political. All right. With your work and this book, you've clearly proven yourself worthy of giving advice. Yeah. So we have a we have some questions. All right. The first one comes from Katie. Katie. In Florida. In Florida. And, and Katie, are you going to be like Flavor Flav? And... <laughs> Wait, how am I like Flavor Flav? You're just going to be Katie, Florida, oh, like my oh. yo man. Well, I'm just I trying like to it. repeat and know the facts of Katie, the question. Katie, Florida. In Florida. What else? My husband is a wonderful person and a nighttime blanket stealer. Oh. Most nights I'll wake up and find him clutching about 80% of the bedding. He doesn't realize that he's doing it, but how do I make this stop? <sighs> well, Katie in Florida, I will say this. I feel you. Except I'm more like your husband, mm. um, and I am the blanket thief. Mm. I need an entire blanket to myself. I need to have some between my knees to help my back, mm -hmm. and then I also need to be fully burritoed into that blanket. <laughs> the solution, yeah. I feel like you could go to Target mm -hmm. and get two blankets. Oh. Aren't you sacrificing cuddling, though? With double blankets. Ah, good point. You can't be under the same blanket that Two way. burritos next to each other. One person's burritoed. Mm -hmm. 
the other. You're it's like a burrito, and then there's the second blanket envelops like both a Taco a, Bell creation. Yes, like yeah. exactly. I think marriage is hard enough, and there are fights that need to end in screaming. And this is one that if there's a blanket purchase, that's a solve. Yeah, I, I say second blanket. Here's my question though: If the guy's a blanket thief and he's not aware that he's doing it, how do we know he's just not going to take your blanket as well as his mm, own? That's or true. Just what he does. That's Burrito. a real dark view of the world. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know where that pessimism's coming from, and I don't know where it would end. So let's wish Katie the best. Go to Target. By the way, here's. A little more wisdom. Two words. Three blankets. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Here's something from Anne in D.C. Anne writes, as a childless adult, is it okay to RSVP no to a child's birthday party if the weather forecast says it's too nice to be locked inside with screaming kids? What if I just send a nice gift instead? Oh, my God. Yes, it's okay to not go. And I will tell you why. (laughs) As someone who now has a kid, Mm. having that kid is a free pass for the rest of my life to get out of going to anything uh, yeah. I don't want to go yeah. to. Oh, yeah. I can't go. No the babysitter. Child. And so I'm going to play that card on <laughs> yeah. you a bunch. Yeah. So you're allowed to play any card you want. For the other person. With yeah. whatever excuses can be cooked up in your childless existence. That's right. <laughs> Children as cards to be played. <laughs> Very much so. Um, okay, so our next question comes from Brian. We don't know where Brian's from. Brian. From nowhere. Brian, via our site. So Brian writes, what's the appropriate response when your Tinder date gets violently ill at an expensive sushi restaurant? <sighs> okay. Wow. I see this very clearly. Yeah. Um, the appropriate response is to marry that person. Oh. Because here's the thing. That person is so embarrassed, mm. so vulnerable, uh, that they accept all your are kind of beholden to you now for the rest of your life. You'll always have a little thing on them. There's always going to be a deficit and that's kind of the perfect person to marry because you always want to be a little ahead. Is that the worst? That's nice. I'm just telling you it feels true. But in what way did they owe you for taking them to a restaurant that made them violently ill? Oh, are we blaming them? I mean, I thought it might just be a reaction. I was When I read this, I was thinking Brian's like, wait a second, it's just a Tinder date. Am I all of a sudden committed by mistake because she because, got sick right, it's over the tuna roll? And so now how, like, I can take her yeah. to the hospital, but do I have to like follow up? And then will she get the wrong idea? And then do I call her parents? You know? uh, the, so. but the plot thins. Um, <laughs> the I, plot sickens. plot sickens. Ooh. You're welcome. I feel like even going to eat a dinner mm. on a Tinder date feels pretty advanced. For Tinder, commitment? I mean, that means commitment. Yeah, when you go on a, I don't know, are you single? Yes. So you go on a date. Look at my hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no woman's taking care of you. Yeah. Um, or a man, I don't want to judge. But um, yeah, you go on a date and you agree to go to drinks because mm. a dinner. Could yeah, be no, you're hours. right. Dinner is like you have to agree to drinks first. So Brian, if you brought her to dinner, you're pretty much beholden to this person. You did this to yourself, man. No, I am saying that marry them because I. It will work out. Okay. Yeah. Congratulations, Brian. Okay. All right. Last question. Yeah. This one comes from Laura in Chicago. Laura, Chicago. <laughs> sorry, I forgot that was my <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah. Sorry. All right. My flavor, flav. Laura writes, "I'm going to a costume optional party with my boyfriend. I have this great idea for a costume duo that I think would be a huge hit. Deep down, I know he isn't really the dressing up type, but he'll probably do it to humor me if I ask. Should I twist his arm?" Mm. A cold wind just blew through the studio. Ugh. You got to be real careful about who you're asking to get in the second half of that horse costume. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like 
doing a, ma- a cutesy match Halloween costume means you are <sighs> engaged or almost engaged mm. or married. <laughs> yeah, mm. whether you know it or not. Anything short of that, I would just say, and that sounds sexist to be like, don't scare them off. But this could go with either gender. Yeah. Uh, I think you got to just let it be. If he's not a costume dude. Yeah. yeah, seriously. It also depends a little bit on the costume, right? I mean, if it's a cool... I'm, we'll I'm dress to... up as a bride and a groom. Yeah. Is that the I know, magic that, that's costume? That's what I was going to say. I think in a way, I'm going the other way because I feel like Lara should have this conversation because the other person needs to know that he may marry someone who wants to go in oh. cutesy costumes to events <laughs> to together. I think that a marriage can work between a costume person and a non-costume person. <laughs> okay. Jesse Klein from New York. Jesse Klein, New York. Thanks for telling our audience how to behave. Um, thank you for thinking I'm someone who knows anything. Jesse Klein, her new book is called You'll Grow Out of It. Check it out. It is very, very funny. And folks, even if you're a blanket thief, you have a right to have your etiquette dilemma addressed. And we're here to help. Submit your query to us at dinnerpartydownload.org or call our hotline. It's 929-335-3653. That is 929-335-DNLD. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And recently, Brendan and I were in one of the country's great food towns, Chicago. We were there to attend the world's largest podcast convention. It's called Podcast Movement. And we are definitely not going to brag that we also won an award there. (laughs) That's right. Mentioning that they named us best food and drink podcast would be rude. We just had an etiquette segment after all. Of course. Uh, But anyway, the problem is we were so busy with the conference, I actually didn't get a chance to get out and eat much Chicago food. And some of the stuff is really interesting, especially their kind of signature dishes. So on the last night, I met up with Mike Sula. He is the James Beard Award-winning food writer for the Chicago Reader. Before he treated me to the quintessential Chicago nightcap... I had him give me a rundown of all the local fare I was missing, starting with his favorite. Oh, my favorite? Well, that's probably the Italian beef invented by uh, Sicilian immigrants to uh, stretch the banquet at the wedding. It's a big hunk of braised beef, sliced thin, piled high on a roll, dipped in the juice if you want it wet, not if you're dry. Um, hot jardinier if you want it hot, sweet peppers if you want it sweet. So you can get it hot or sweet or dry or wet. And or dry or wet. <laughs> there's all sorts of options. Yeah, many. So there's that. Uh, there's also, of course, the Chicago-style hot dog, which I love. The Chicago-style hot dog is a, is a hot dog born out of the Depression, basically dragged through the garden, as they say, with uh, pickle spear, tomato, celery salt, um, neon green relish, onion, mustard, on a poppy seed bun. That's my favorite thing. And by the way, you're not supposed to put any ketchup on a Chicago hot dog, correct? Yeah, not, not unless you're, you know, six years or under. Okay. It's for the youth. Right. For, for the youngsters. And anything else? You have a few more obscure original regional variations like the mother-in-law, which is a um, locally made, factory made tamale on a hot dog bun covered in chili. That's the mother-in-law. Then, <laughs> Why is it called the mother-in-law? What about that is motherly? Its origins are, are kind of unclear. Sort of a, uh, a collision of African-Americans and Mexican immigrants. But there's no Mr. Mother-in-law that we know of. Granddaddy, mother-in-law. There's no father of the mother-in-law. It might have actually been someone's mother-in-law. Anyway, so we could have done stories on all of that. Unfortunately, we were discussing all of the possible things that we could eat and talk about together over an incredibly heavy meal at a fancy restaurant. 
So we're here at a bar and we're about to try another Chicago delicacy. We need something to settle our stomachs. So uh, what we're about to do is take a shot of Jepson's Malort. Now, I've heard of this for a long time. Don't know much about it. Why don't you explain? Jepson's Malort comes out of a family of uh, Swedish liqueurs known as Besk or Malort. Uh, Malort is sort of a common word for it. Jepson's is Chicago's own Malort. It's a a wormwood-based spirit. Essentially, it's grain-neutral alcohol infused with the um, herb wormwood, which you might remember was mentioned in the Book of Revelations. Is also um, Chernobyl, the famous Russian nuclear actor, is basically Russian for wormwood. It's a very bitter herb. <laughs> it's radioactive bitterness. Yes, indeed. All right. I've always heard it associated with Chicago. Why is it associated with Chicago? Well, it's not really sold in very many places outside of northern Illinois, maybe a few places in, in Wisconsin. Um, although its renown is growing, it used to be you only find it in uh, um, biker bars, basically. The guy who bought the brand back in the 30s marketed it on its unpalatability. You know, if you you were able to take two shots of it, that's what made you a man, not drinking one shot of it. So the point was for it to not necessarily be that great. Right. It's deliberately unpalatable. My understanding, though, is that it's it's less unpalatable than perhaps in the past. Yeah, I mean, uh, this hasn't been proven, but Pat Gablick, who's the owner of the company who inherited it from her boss, George Brody, says that she uh, sources her wormwood from various parts of the world, and sometimes it comes in in a, a greater potency than other times. And five or six years ago, the Malort was a lot stronger than it is today. It's actually been a while since I've had one, so I'm interested to see how it is. So really, it's like you could actually have a vintage of Malort and it would taste different, kind of like a wine? Great idea. I'd actually suggested that to Pat Gablick, that she should put a uh, a vintage on each year, and she sort of stared right through me when I said so. That's ridiculous, because it's true. Like, there would be people who really want to be manly, and they have to get the year of Malort that was super strong wormwood, right? Well, Malort is getting to a point where, I mean, there are enough hipster connoisseurs of Malort that that's something that I think they would latch on to. I think it's a great missed marketing opportunity. All right, well, perhaps they're listening and we're about to make them a billion dollars. So we have uh, a couple of shots in front of us. Uh, it is kind of a light greenish color, would you say? It's, it's, um, it's close to urine colored, I'd say. All right, thank you for making this all the more easy. I'd say it's, it's kind of got a fruity nose with a, a, a very strong whiff of alcohol in there. Yeah, it's got a little grapefruit to it with a little sort of like burnt rubber. Just the thing to cap off a delectable repast. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, bitter, definitely. Wow, really bitter. It's, it has almost no other characteristic than bitter. It's got a sustaining bitterness that I think you'll notice. It, it, it keeps on giving. You should put that bottoms up. Oh, should I shoot it? For sure. Don't, it's not a sipper. <laughs> so the point is really not to taste nah, it. No, you don't want to savor just throw it down. Here we go. Here's the remainder of this shot. Ah. Oh, it burns. <laughs> I'm not a very hairy man, but I have a feeling that's about to change. You're, you're sprouting hair as I'm, as I'm watching. Chicago has made a man of me. And Brendan, I'm happy to say that just before I left Chicago, I got to wash mm-hmm. the taste of Malort out of my mouth. 
using another Chicago mainstay, some deep dish pizza. Mm, okay. Yeah, which I found very delicious, even though traditionalists kind of disdain it, apparently. Why do they disdain it? They say it's not really a pizza, that it's a, like a casserole, really. What is wrong with a casserole? Casserole. There is nothing. Sounds dreamy. Exactly. <laughs> Lighten up, pizza police. God's sake. All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up, we chat with Sherry Appleby, star of the show Unreal, when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, Dan Finnerty of the Dan Band gives us a playlist you must keep out of your wedding DJ's clutches. Mm-hmm. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's Shiri Appleby. You may have seen her in films like Charlie Wilson's War, opposite Tom Hanks, in her recurring role in HBO's Girls, or starring in the series Roswell. But these days, she's known for her dark star turn as the character Rachel in the Peabody-winning Lifetime series Unreal. The show is set behind the scenes at a fictional reality TV dating series called Everlasting. Rachel is one of the show's producers, and her job is to get female contestants to behave badly on screen. In the process, she manages to sell out almost every moral and ideal she has. In this clip, she's just found out a contestant's fiancé died, and she tells a naive new producer how to twist that to the show's advantage. Okay, so you're gonna use that little bit of information and you're gonna interview her, okay? You're gonna get her to cry and show you tears. She's gonna ask you, will I ever love again? It's gonna build all this sympathy for Chantal and Bethann's gonna look like a total d- for not wanting to room with her. Well, I just really don't think she's gonna wanna talk about that. I mean, how am I supposed to force her? I don't know, tell her your mother died or something. Act like you get it. My mom did die. There you go. Right there, you see that? You use that. When Shiri and I met, I first asked if she watched real reality TV. I'm not much of a television watcher in the sense that it's like watching your work, that you want to come home and leave your work behind. Yes. But what I do watch of television happens to be reality. (laughs) Is that true? Because it's not like my job. Oh, interesting. Except now it is. So now it is. So now I watch reality shows with a different eye in the sense that I can now see the manipulation and I can see the producing. But you couldn't, you don't, you couldn't before? I mean, I could, but the thing I think about reality television, at least for me, is that it's sort of mind-numbing. That's what I appreciate about it. Like, I can just, like, turn it on and it's just escaping life completely. But even now, now that you've, you know, the show is co-created by someone who worked in reality mm-hmm. TV... And in a sense, what we're getting in the show is a look behind the scenes at the Sausage Factory. It's still fascinating. I but, mean, I think what what was fascinating to me about it before was like being single and watching people seemingly fall in love mm-hmm. and asking myself, what does it look like to fall in love? How do you how do you fall in love and wanting to use it sort of as research? And now I'm just thinking, I can't believe that people are going to such lengths. It's like I used to be a big fan of real world. No, yeah, of course. And once it got to like New Orleans and you knew that people were just onto it. It, yeah. was, it lost its momentum and it lost its importance to me. Oh, when it when it had been on long enough that the people appearing on the show knew how they were supposed to act rather than acting naturally. I was done. You were, you were Once over... the girl with Lyme disease left in Seattle, the oh, show's man. never really been the same. It's true. That is Interesting that you would bring that up. For those who don't know, that was the MTV, one of the first reality shows ever in America. And I very vividly remember that season of the show in Seattle, one of the characters got Lyme disease and she had to leave the show because of it. And there's a moment where she actually says, why aren't all of you leaving the show? Look at where we're living. And the camera pulled back and showed the house where they're all living. 
and it it's hung with movie set lights. You'd mm. never been shown that before. Mm. They're basically living on a set. And that's kind of what this show does. Yes, we're definitely pulling back the curtain and showing you what these shows, how they're made, and, and the lengths that people will go to create reactions to create a television show. When I talk to fans of the show, they're always mentioning how disappointed they are About? with your with your character. Oh. <laughs> that she just always seems to make the wrong moral decision at a clutch moment. Mm. But still, these folks, and I suspect you, mm-hmm. still find sympathy with her somehow. And I'm wondering what it is about her that you sympathize with. Yeah, I mean, I, like, love her. I don't actually think that she is setting out to make the wrong decision. In fact, I think she's always trying to make the right decision. But her head and the way she processes life is so screwed up that Mm -hmm. it's sort of hard to get at that. Um, I mean, I empathize with her. She's a character that's really not had any stability. She's had a mother that's been abusive, prescribing her medication for a handful of years. And also, she's very much looking for connection, but she doesn't trust the world. So you feel and empathize for a character that so badly wants something that she's incapable of giving herself. I also feel, too, like she's got these principles that she can't uphold in this corrupt business and world that just doesn't value them. Yes. Like, do I, can I believe in this? It's like her thing is like, you know, she fancies herself a feminist and yet she works on a show that's really just tearing women apart. Well, let's actually talk about that aspect of the character for a second. This is a very conflicted individual. Actually, Vanity Fair recently wrote an article about the show and called your character the purest example of a female antihero in modern TV. And, of course, we've had a lot of examples of male antiheroes on shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and The Sopranos. Was that part of the attraction of the role? Well, to be honest with you, when I was uh, auditioning for this part or even making it, I had no idea that what we were doing was going to hit any sort of nerve uh, with having a female antihero. I just thought it was going to be maybe a conversation by lifting the curtain on reality television. Yeah. You know, I've never, I mean, I've been acting my whole life and I've never really thought about having, I never knew that women had to act a certain way. Like my Mm. role models when I would think about television was Murphy Brown, Felicity, Mm. Ally McBeal. These were women that were complicated and those were the women that I gravitated towards watching on television. And I also never really saw, like, yes, what she's doing is bad, but she always felt so emotionally confused and conflicted about it. Your character, yeah. Yeah, that I didn't think that it would be seen as this horrible thing. Quite honestly, it caught me off guard. Do I now see it and see how it's probably being perceived by the public? Absolutely. And I think it's very exciting to be a part of that conversation and at least giving women some more freedom in what kind of stories we can tell moving forward. It's also interesting, too, the conflict between her and Quinn, her boss. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure there are examples of it, but it's one of the few I can think of where it's an example of two very strong women kind of in combat with each other. I mean, I think it's, you know, very interesting to see two women in the working world together whose relationship is based on their work and their professional Mm. desires as opposed to uh, having anything to do with a man or romance. It passes the Bechdel test. That's exactly right. They're often having conversations not about dudes. Yeah. I mean, this season more so than last, there's men coming into the picture for both these women, but at, what's at the heart of these women is money and <laughs> power. <laughs> Which they get. <laughs> I'm going to bleep one of those words, but we'll say that... Power the... <laughs> or money. <laughs> nope. 
<laughs> they can be dirty words, though. Exactly, especially coming out of a woman's mouth. <laughs> uh, true, but not as far as the FCC is concerned. <laughs> um, you are not just an actress this season on the show. You are also uh, directing yes. the episode that comes out this week. I did. There's a logistical question. You're shooting a show within a show, so you've got actual camera and crew mm-hmm. shooting fake camera and crew. Correct. There must be a very difficult dance to know which camera is real. Yes. You know, we're always talking about these are the everlasting cameras and these are the unreal cameras. And so needing to place the everlasting cameras so that the unreal cameras can see them. But then at the same time, you have to use your unreal cameras to capture the everlasting footage. And plus the fact that the name of the show is Unreal, saying the Unreal cameras makes it sound like those are the fake cameras. It's so crazy. And then you also have the actress directing the character that is playing the producer producing the television show. It was like, it's meta times three. So how did you deal with it? I killed it. (laughs) Uh, How did I deal with it? You know, the one thing I, I learned after I'd say two days was that saying action was too much. When I was acting, I was like, somebody else needs to say action. Somebody else basically got to do what I think is the coolest part of being a director. But you know what's so interesting is say a action. lot of directors don't say action. What do they do? They let their first AD say it. Because a lot of the directors, the director, yeah, yeah the, first, the assistant directors, a lot of directors are so focused on watching the monitors and everything else, or they don't want to hear their voice, that they don't say it. But then a lot of directors will say action with a different tone or a different register to try to create an energy on set. So yeah, sure. everyone's really different with how they do it. All right. So you're just following in a legacy. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm just good. confusing the actors as much as I can, quite honestly. I'm going to ask you two our two standard questions that we ask everyone oh, on the show. Right. Here is the first one, which is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, yes. what question should we not ask you? Oh, man. Um, what question? Do you like the meal? How's the food? See, my husband is a chef, so whenever we go to dinners, people always want to ask, like, what do you guys think of the food? What do you think of the food? Like, and you're, you're the experts? Yeah, like, oh, are you guys eating the food? Did you think she was a good cook? And you're always like, oh, please don't ask us anything about the food. We just want to eat it and go home. It's another example of just wanting to leave your work at your yeah, work. Yeah, you're just like, we just want to eat. You it, can't escape it's it. It's just food. Or, you know, the food's terrible. And then you're just like, oh, please don't make us talk about the food. <laughs> Don't make us admit to how lousy a job you That's just exactly did. right. Or, or don't ask us, like, where are you guys going to go eat after this? Okay. Where, where are you going to eat after this? Probably Medeo's or John and Vinny's, quite honestly. Okay, very good. Yeah. For those visiting Los Angeles, those are great restaurant recommendations. Yeah. John and Vinny's, excellent. <laughs> oh, my husband's John. Oh, what? Yes. It's very famous. Thank I was not aware of that. There you go. Well, that almost answers, but not quite, our, our next question. Okay, go ahead. Which is, tell us something we don't know. Oh. And this could be about anything in the world or about yourself. Oh, okay. Well, tell us anything you don't know about the world. Yeah, or... trivia. Oh, my God. It's so much pressure. I just want to tell you something useless. Um... It can be useless. Okay. Well, I'll tell you something useless about myself. Okay. I was yearbook editor for two years. I was also a cheerleader, and I was in leadership. I was a very proactive um, participant in my high school experience. I also filmed my whole high school experience and ended up editing it into a movie what? that I can know and putting it on VHS tapes and giving them to all my best girlfriends. And I can't find it. Nobody has a copy of Nobody it? Nobody has a copy of it. It's the most heartbreaking thing. I literally had a camera. I went around. I was literally David Silver. Wait, who's David Silver? Are you kidding? I, I don't. Brian know. Austin Green's character in the original 90210. I'm, I'm sorry. I can't even believe. <laughs> Some people in our production room are like just wincing that I don't know that reference. So there, I just told you something you don't know. Yeah. Who is David Silver? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> 
Sherry Appleby. She stars in Unreal. The show's in its second season on Lifetime. And folks, once a month or so, we let you peek behind the curtain at our show. That's right. In a series of special bonus episodes we call Speakeasy. You can hear those by subscribing to our podcast via iTunes or wherever podcasts are podcasting. And now the soundtrack, in which we ask a musician to DJ your dinner party. And today our guest is Dan Finnerty of the Dan Band. Yes. You may recognize his foul-mouthed renditions of pop songs from the films The Hangover and Old School, where he tarted up Total Eclipse of the Heart with a slew of F-bombs. A great moment. Not surprisingly, his latest record, The Wedding Album, offers up salty songs for a wedding reception. So just in time for wedding season, here's Dan with a playlist. Hey, I'm Dan Finnerty, and uh, you know I grew up with a lot of songs in the 70s that I just never even listened to the lyrics, and now as an adult, I I listen to them, and I'm horrified at how many people probably were slow dancing to these songs, not knowing how wrong they were. So I was just thinking, like, what are some of the worst 70s songs you could choose, or a couple could choose, as their first dance song at their wedding? This first song is uh, a song by Meatloaf. I mean, come on, speaking of dinner. Written by the great Jim Steinman, who I'm a huge fan of because he wrote Total Eclipse of the Heart, which, you know, is a classic for me. And So this song is called Two Out of Three, Ain't Bad. Maybe we can talk all night But that ain't getting us nowhere I saw an interview with Jim Steinman, and he was saying the label wanted a ballad. and He just didn't want to do what they said and write some tender ballad, so he masked it. He was like, well, what would Elvis do? And he was trying to do like, oh, won't you? I just never caught the part where he's like, I think people just glaze over and slow dance and make out and don't realize he's saying there's no way he's ever going to love her. So the second song that I think would be tragic to play as a first dance at a wedding is uh, a song by Charlene, and it's called Never Been to Me. Hey lady, you lady, cursing at your life. You know, again, it's very melodic, but it's basically this lady calling out to all the women in the world saying like, stop your women's lib, stop this movement. Ooh, I've been to Georgia and I think it's an anti-feminist song. You know, I went out and saw the world and uh, it was awful for me and she pretty much breaks it down into a monologue in the middle of the song. She was like, hey, you know what paradise is? It's a lie. A fantasy we create about people and places as we'd like them to be. But you know what truth is? It's that little baby you're holding and it's that man you fought with this morning, the same one you're going to make love with tonight. The message that women should just stay at home and cook and clean for their husbands. That's like a perfect first dance song. Alright, this third song is a classic story song from the 70s. I can't imagine a couple playing it at their wedding for the first dance, but I would do anything to be at that wedding. It's a song that I used to hear trapped in my parents' car, bouncing around in the back seat with no seatbelts on and my dad chain smoking with the windows up. And, you know, everything about the 70s, looking back, doesn't make sense. But this song, Angie Baby by Helen Reddy, is basically about a really shy girl who 
doesn't like to go out. She's like antisocial or something. And so she's always sitting in her room listening to the radio. And her parents are like, come on, Angie, you got to get out and make friends. Folks hoping you'd turn out cool, but they have to take you out of school. You're a little touched, you know, Angie, baby. And then when the neighbor boy tries to sneak into the window, she suddenly has magical powers and she shrinks this boy down into the radio. My favorite line is like, And as she turns the volume down, he's getting smaller with the sound. It seems to pull him off the ground to walk the radio he's found. Never to be found. <laughs> I mean, again, I can't imagine a, a couple picking this as their first dance song, but it would be so awesome if they realized while they were dancing, you know, what the song was about and even better if the groom just slowly started shrinking and disappeared. <laughs> All right, so we're going to close it out with a song that I wrote with Pat Monahan from Train and yeah, we we set out to write what would be the worst first dance song ever. I can't believe you love me. It's from the point of view of a guy who is slow dancing with this girl and confessing his love for her. And then out of nowhere, he's basically saying, um, statistically, everybody's marriage is doomed. Dan Finnerty of the Dan Band. His latest LP is called The Wedding Album, and you can catch him on tour and unbleeped this week in Phoenix, Arizona. And folks, that's actually the last dance for this week's show. Thanks to producer Jackson Musker, associate producer Nina Potok, and associate digital producer Christina Lopez. Our interns are Christian Coons and Danny Carmichael, Charlton Thorpe, engineered. Our executive producer is Larissa Anderson. Special props this week to Dan Pashman, Megan Ellingbow, Jenny Hatfield, and to all of the fine folks we met at Podcast Movement in Chicago. Again, as always, you can catch any of our past shows via iTunes or wherever you go to get your podcasts. You'll find stuff like longer cuts of our stories and at least five rants against brunch. Oh, yeah. Happy binging and bon appetit.